In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor at the EU summit in Brussels. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne in Dublin. Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and in London. As the podcast is currently in transition, we're bringing you a special edition to look in depth at the Windsor framework, which reboots the Northern Ireland Protocol, why unionists have rejected it, what it means for the restoration of the Stormont Assembly and Executive, and for the broader EU-UK relationship. And we'll hear from our London correspondent, John Kilrain, on why Tory Eurosceptic MPs have turned against the deal, which was supposed to win over the DUP, and finally bring about the restoration of the Northern Ireland institutions. We'll also take a detailed look at the Stormont break. What is it? How does it work? And why the very thing which was supposed to overcome the protocol's so-called democratic deficit has been rejected as useless by the European Research Group. We'll have top-tier analysis on the Stormont break from Lisa Clare Whitten of the Queen's University Belfast Brexit Unit. But first, let's have a look at what happened this week. Uh, Tony... Rishi Sunak finally, it seems, got Brexit done, at least in a parliamentary vote, a thumping 515 to 29 vote win to get through the Stormont break. That's right. This was a vote in the House of Commons column uh, on Wednesday on the Stormont break specifically, which is part of the Windsor framework. Uh, but that was essentially... Uh, a proxy vote on the, the whole uh, Windsor framework itself. And this uh, seemingly is the only uh, binding vote that the House of Commons would be getting in the short term, at least, uh, on, on the Windsor framework. Uh, and it was, as you say, uh, overwhelmingly accepted by the House of Commons. Boris Johnson, uh, the former Prime Minister, left a fairly difficult grilling uh, over the question of misleading uh, Parliament uh, to vote against the storm and break element of the Windsor framework, uh, as did um, most of the DUP MPs and a uh, around 20 or so uh, Eurosceptic MPs in Rishi Sunak's party. Uh, but this is another milestone in the onward uh, march of the, the, the new relationship between the EU and the UK uh, and they seem to be carrying forward this new understanding on the Northern Ireland Protocol through this Windsor framework uh, in the hope that it will both restore relations in the long term between uh, Brussels and London but also restore the institutions in Stormont uh, but that still isn't the case because uh, Geoffrey Donaldson of course the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party came out uh, on Wednesday night to say that problems still remain with the Windsor framework and that there was no sustainable basis for the DUP to restore Stormont and he was confirming that the DUP would vote against the proposal uh, and continue to engage with the government to secure 
uh, further changes. Now, Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach, was arriving here in Brussels at the summit today, today being Thursday, and this is what he had to say about Geoffrey Donaldson's response. The result of the vote in Westminster last night is very welcome. Uh, more than 400 M MPs out of 650 voting for the Windsor framework. Uh, so that's very positive and allows us now to go ahead and implement it in good faith. And I'm confident that the UK government and the European Union will implement the Windsor framework now in good faith. Uh, and that's going to be to the benefit of people in Northern Ireland in particular. So uh, that's the good news. Um, disappointed to hear that uh, the DUP isn't willing to uh, go back into the executive and assembly. Um, I think they should. Uh, people in Northern Ireland uh, are facing big problems, inflation, a housing crisis, uh, a health service that's under enormous pressure, um, all the problems that we face and worse. And what they need is their politicians in Stormont, in government, um, sorting out those problems for them. So, um, you know, we'll continue to engage with the five major parties in Northern Ireland and with the British government to do anything we can over the next couple of weeks and months to try and get those institutions back up and running. Um, I don't think all is lost yet. Um, would really like to see the institutions back up and running as they should be. Um, I, I think it's premature to be talking about anything like direct rule, quite frankly, but it is the consistent position of the Irish government um, that direct rule is not provided for in the Good Friday Agreement and uh, we couldn't support going back to that. Uh, to take Leo Varadkar wearing his hat as the leader of a government in the European Union, uh, Tony, this is it. It's finished as far as the EU-UK discussion of the Northern Ireland Protocol goes. The deal is done and it's time to move on. Whatever now happens with regards to the institutions in Northern Ireland, it seems from Leo Varadkar's point of view, is something to be hammered out internally within the UK and in on the bilateral track between Dublin and London. Yes, Colm, the, the deal is done, uh, but that deal opens up a, a brand new relationship both for the EU and the UK in, in the broader sense, but also a brand new process that will be very complicated and very challenging, I think, for all sides. Um, in what way? It, well, it's the, 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 the key change to the protocol is the storm and break. Uh, we, we'll get into that in more detail at the moment, but essentially that means that when new single market rules are applied in Northern Ireland or when existing single market rules are updated or amended in Northern Ireland, um, th there will be a process whereby all sides, so I'm talking about MLAs, I'm talking about the Northern Ireland Civil Service, I'm talking about the European Commission, uh, businesses, civil society, will look at this in fairly granular detail to see does do any of these new rules or updated rules cause a problem to Northern Ireland that is likely to persist? And then everybody has to get to grips with that, what that problem is and how that problem might be resolved. So there's, a, there's an awful lot more oversight and scrutiny and engagement by all sides in, in the day-to-day -day running uh, of the, the, the protocol in Northern Ireland. Uh, and and that's, that's going to be a capacity issue and it's going to mean that um, yes, Brexit is done. The protocol deal has been sorted, but the, the the you know Northern Ireland is going to be in this hybrid situation, applying the EU single market rules for goods, but part of the UK's rules for its own internal market. And 
making sure that takes over and runs smoothly is, is going to require kind of all hands on deck all the time. Is there any concern about it from the European Union side because any kind of a hybrid arrangement might be seen as a precedent elsewhere? Switzerland, I think, had already taken <clears throat> a certain interest in it. Excuse me. Has the European Union attempted to be clear that this is a bespoke solution for Northern Ireland and for Northern Ireland only? And what concerns would they have if it was taken as a precedent by anyone else? Yes, they... I mean, it's important to remember, first of all, that this is a an adaptation of the existing Northern Ireland Protocol. And that came about, of course, following however many years of negotiation but it it was it, it was the creature of a set of principles and guidelines that the EU set in stone at the very beginning and the key word was unique uh, that northern ireland had a unique set of problems and challenges because of brexit and any solution for northern ireland would have to be unique by definition um now it was interesting that when the windsor framework was landed on the 27th of February. There was a technical briefing by the European Commission trying to explain to journalists in Brussels how it worked. And there were uh, fairly quickly, there were questions from Norwegian and Swiss journalists to say, oh, look, could this be a precedent or a template for Norway or Switzerland uh, to use in terms of democratic scrutiny of EU single market rules, which both countries follow. And uh, those questions were given a very polite but firm uh, negative response from the Commission. So this is not going to be picked up by uh, other uh, member states that are outside the EU but participating in the single market. This is a uh, a unique bespoke arrangement for Northern Ireland. How much of a change was the Windsor framework with, including the storm and break, how much of a change was it to the protocol? How much of a departure was it from the principles of the protocol? I suppose, in short, did the UK succeed in renegotiating the protocol and achieving change, or is it largely the protocol being stretched as far as it could go to achieve as much as it could? Colin, both sides are making their own claims about this. Now, clearly, the UK came out very quickly. Rishi Sunak said this was a, this was a new uh, legal agreement. that it, it replaced the old protocol, as he called it. Um, the EU is saying what they have done, essentially, is they've used a provision within the existing protocol which allows both sides to make changes if there are errors or omissions or, or things that were unforeseen when the protocol was negotiated. So what this does is, is it, in certain cases, it inserts uh, new language, new legal text into the protocol. There's a thing now called 133A uh, that really covers the storm and break. Uh, again, we'll get into that in more detail. Um, and th- there will be other legal changes that will be done via the Joint Committee. The Joint Committee is organised between the EU and UK, and they can make legal changes themselves or they can make legal commitments themselves, they can sign up to legal texts which oblige them to do certain things around the operation of the protocol. So it depends on who you ask, whether this is a brand new thing that replaces the old protocol or simply a uh, an expanded protocol that, that, that uses a, a particular doorway within the existing protocol to create uh, some new legal uh, paragraphs and provisions. But certainly... 
to answer your question, there, there are very significant changes uh, to, to what was happening before. We have the red and green lanes situation, which will differentiate between goods that are clearly staying in Northern Ireland and being consumed in Northern Ireland. Uh, and those goods which are clearly heading down to the, the south and to the single market. Now, there's a whole apparatus around that red and green lane system. On the one hand, you have this big data access agreement between the EU and the UK. EU officials can see in real time, in very forensic details, what, what goods are coming into Northern Ireland. They can spot patterns, suspicions, flags can be raised, and then lorries can be checked. But that means that the, the checking regime is a lot more intelligence-led. It's not routine. It's, it's, it, it'll happen for a reason. So that has allowed the EU to say, OK, look, we don't need to have all these checks and controls. At the same time, they have vastly and, and greatly simplified paperwork uh, around agri-food products. Um, and uh, they have es essentially accepted a dual regulatory system, uh, for example, medicines from Great Britain, both um, specialised and generic, will, will be allowed to, to be operated in Northern Ireland um, on the basis that the EU recognises the UK's regulatory system to, to make sure those goods are OK. Again, there has to be labelling to make sure they're not going to be moving south. <clears throat> but there are some big strides that the EU has taken towards the UK position in terms of risk and the whole concept of risk. Right. And, but, and, and then, of course, the straw and break is the other big centrepiece to this. But to have that kind of an increased risk appetite, there must have been trust. So how did the negotiations unfold to arrive at this point? How was trust established, first of all? And then how did the horse trading go? Because there was quite an amount of silence on this whole process since we published our last episode of this podcast late last year? Yeah, trust is a key thing. Um, the arrival of Rishi Sunak was instrumental. I think what was driving both sides was the sense that we have to sort this out. From the EU point of view, they wanted to get this issue done, focus on the war in Ukraine. Both sides want to cooperate a lot more on that. They want to cooperate more on the energy situation, on China, uh, on the big geopolitical pictures, the uh, picture of, 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 uh, of, of the age. Um, Rishi Sunak was seen as someone they could do business with, so, you know, an entirely different creature to Boris Johnson and, and Liz Truss somebody who was not quite so tainted with the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, uh, which, of course, caused no end of, of dismay in, in the EU uh, on the on the question of trust and, and, and a unilateral uh, breach of, of international law, as they would see it. Um, so, so it was a blend of personalities and real politic and also the, you know, the broader interests of the EU and the UK look to get this done and for that reason, the, the negotiations seem to be uh, very harmonious, very optimistic, you know, very good working relationship between Maro Shevchevich, for example, and his opposite number, Sir James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary. Uh, all of these contributed to uh, a process that, that was going to work uh, ultimately. And I think, um, to, to finish the point, the when they did get an agreement on data sharing, that was on the 9th of January, that was not only a key moment where the the, they, the EU could say, now we have the safeguards, now we can trust a system because we can see what's coming in, but it also gave both teams of negotiators the sense that 
look, we can do this, um, that we have now moved beyond a point where we're poking around at it, we can actually do this. And, and then I think both sides then were, were a lot more in the spirit of compromise. And where did the key ideas come from? For example, the storm and break. Who came up with that as a wheeze to fix what had been going on and to, I suppose, improve the level of consultation that would be afforded to people in Northern Ireland, but all, particularly the unionist community? Um, I'm not clear exactly who came up with the idea, but when when the storm and break was unveiled uh, on the 27th of February, a lot of people thought that this was somehow to replace the European Court of Justice, which, of course, as we know and we've talked about before, was was a really toxic sticking point between both sides. Um, the, the appeal, certainly to people I've spoken to here in Brussels, there is an appeal uh, to this uh, storm and break because it is borrowed from the Good Friday Agreement. It's a mechanism there that initially was designed to help perhaps the nationalist community or the minority community at the time when the Good Friday Agreement was uh, negotiated, that if there were sensitive cultural issues, nationalists could get a fair hearing, even though they were in the minority. Um, so they've, they've borrowed that mechanism and brought it into the protocol. Um, and it, it does give certainly a sense that if there are things that Northern Ireland MLAs, for whatever reason, or business, for whatever reason, don't like when EU single market rules are being applied in Northern Ireland, then they can take action to have, to, to, to pull a break and say, stop, let's take a look at this. Uh, is this going to cause problems? And that's really the essence of the storm and break. Right. Uh, John Kilrain, our London correspondent, is on the line. Hiya, John. Hello there, Colin. Um, the vote on this, and Tony has talked about what the aim of the storm and break was, it's aimed to get the DUP on board. They're still considering the merits of the Windsor framework, including the storm and break. They're reserving judgment for now, but in the short term, they voted against uh, the Windsor framework and the storm and break. But at the same time, it was a pretty impressive victory for Rishi Sunak in the House of Commons last night. He's seen off Boris Johnson. He has revealed the hardline Eurosceptic wing of the ERG to be a small rump. It seems to be quite an achievement to have Onion peeled his opposition down to such a small level. Well, it definitely was um, a night of celebration, I think. I'm getting the distinct impression that there was, there was celebrations going on um, in Number 10 or in the environs uh, surrounding it. And Rishi Sunak was out today, all smiles and various photo ops. Um, it's been seen as, as a victory. Um, when you look back yesterday, when there were signs of a growing rebellion, um, Boris Johnson particularly, uh, predictably coming out against, uh, against the vote, um, but also Liz Truss, uh, Priti Patel, former Home Secretary, Ian Duncan Smith, another former Conservative leader. When you had people like that coming out, um, and then there were reports that 30 people had turned up at the a meeting of the European Research Group, the ERG, the hardline Brexit group, who had criticised the storm and break as being practically useless. Um, so in the end, it, it, it might have been closer because all it needed was about 34 Tory MPs to vote against it, and that would have swung the majority around and left the government relying on Labour votes to get it, it, to, to get it through. But as it happened, only 22 
uh, Tory voters, uh, Tory MPs voted against it. There were 48 abstentions, which the ERG are saying means that there was a majority of, of Conservative, you know, that it was relying on Labour votes. Um, but in, in effect, the abstentions meant that it was carried with a majority of Conservative MPs. It would have been, it would have looked very bad for Rishi Sunak if he had had, had to rely on, on Labour votes to get this through. How much of a part of his victory, John, was the appointment of Chris Heaton-Harris to being Northern Ireland Secretary and putting Steve Baker alongside him in that portfolio? People who had um, established Eurosceptic credentials who over the course of the negotiation period and indeed beforehand had come around to the point of view that something needed to be done to, in order to dial down the heat of uh, relations on the island of Ireland and also get something across the line with the European Union. Are those kind of key appointments in, in achieving what he achieved last night? Well, now in retrospect, everyone is saying that was a masterstroke, um, appointing Chris Heaton-Harris and Steve Baker to the to as Northern Ireland Secretary, Northern Ireland Minister, respectively. At the time, you'll remember that everybody was, was it, 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 it produced a, a feeling of dread in, in, in the Irish government and in the, uh, um, in the nationalist community in the North, uh, because these were very hardline Brexiteers, both former chairs of the ERG group themselves. Um, Steve Baker, in particular, um, pursued a very hard Brexit line um, in the in the negotiations, he was one of the so-called Spartans. Uh, I think there was only about 28 of them who voted against every possible compromise that Theresa May came up with. Um, but uh, they they have changed their tune since they since they went to Northern Ireland. Since apparently since they looked at the detail, looked at the situation, uh, you'll remember Steve Baker actually apologised for his behaviour in the aftermath of Brexit. Um, he was the one. Um, campaigning in the last few uh, yesterday, campaigning, trying to get people to support the deal. He urged Boris Johnson not to look like a pound shop Nigel Farage. He was, <laughs> reward he was rewarded with that by being locked out of the ERG WhatsApp group, which, and he was f apparently fuming. He says, I helped set this up, and that he couldn't get through to it to get through to the other members. But he's been credited with holding a lot of the, um, a lot of the right wing on side. Um, and getting this over because the margin was was fairly narrow in, in terms of, of a majority of uh, Tory MPs. Right, and the ERG is still its star chamber, still considering the detail too of uh, the Windsor framework and the storm and break. Tony, you've been getting some expert analysis on the storm and break from Lisa Clare Whitten of Queen's University Belfast's Brexit unit. That's right, Colm. Uh, we'll hear from Lisa in a minute, but I mean, in, in a nutshell, what the storm and break does is it, it provides the opportunity for 30 MLAs out of 90 to raise concerns about any EU regulation which is updated or amended, um, as, as is done routinely every year. Uh, and if they have concerns and those concerns are shared with the business community, stakeholders, the Northern Ireland Civil Service, the UK government, uh, and it seems that no matter what way they look at it, the uh, problem is going to cause real concerns that are likely to persist to everyday life in Northern Ireland, then they can ask the UK government to veto uh, or, to, or to refuse to update those EU regulations or that EU regulation in Northern Ireland. Um, uh, and then we get into a further process. But 
Lisa Claire Whitten is uh, an academic with Queen's University Belfast, their Brexit unit, and she's been explaining to me in more detail about how this Stormont break will work and what kind of regulations uh, it might end up looking at uh, if MLAs raise concerns. Uh, Lisa Clara, thanks very much for joining us on Brexit Republic. Since we last spoke, there's been a big development. We've had the Windsor Framework published and both the EU and the UK are due to take some legislative steps over the coming weeks to put everything into uh, legal practice, if you like. Um, one of them, the big talking points about the Windsor Framework is the storm and break. Mm -hmm. And this is to do with the uh, so-called democratic deficit. Um, now, some people say this gives the UK and or Northern, the Northern Ireland Assembly a veto on EU legislation, but it's probably not quite that simple. Um, but just if you could just remind us what's in the protocol already in terms of the updating of EU regulations that um, happen routinely at EU level and then what, what, uh, how the protocol had dealt with uh, brand new EU regulations and, and, and what, I suppose, input uh, the UK might have if, if those regulations come along. Sure, thanks. And um, thanks for the invitation to be here. Um, it's great to chat to you. So as you suggested, uh, it isn't exactly straightforward, um, albeit it has been discussed as a veto this storm and break. If we think back to, to the protocol arrangements and the relationship that it set up between Northern Ireland and EU law, the body of EU law within the scope of the protocol, um, Northern Ireland was in a position of dynamic regulatory alignment, is how we talked about it, which meant that any updates that were made to EU law that were within the, the um, text of the protocol would apply in Northern Ireland automatically, um, and they would do so... Uh, without any um, input from the UK side or from, from Northern Ireland. If new acts were added um, to the EU law that was potentially within the scope of the protocol, that was a topic for discussion. And that was more um, the UK could say yes or no in that respect. So what the changes do um, is on that first uh, aspect. So um, the automaticity of updates um, that was the arrangement under the agreed protocol, this storm and break in the Windsor framework um, changes that arrangement in relation to Annex 2 of the protocol. So it is primarily about the movement of goods and the standards of goods. Um, what that means is that there are other aspects of EU law that still apply to Northern Ireland under the pre-existing arrangement that of dynamic regulatory alignment. So any updates that are made at EU level will apply automatically. Um, and when we're when we talk about that, really, it's about individual rights, single electricity market, VAT and excise, and state aid. On the, the new arrangements for Annex 2 and the movement of goods, this storm and break procedure um, it is really quite novel. Uh, it's, it's a bit complex. Um, while there's been a lot of focus on it, it, it's important to say that it sits in a broader context um, of... Uh, new provisions for Northern Ireland stakeholders to be involved early and earlier in the process of EU legislative making. Um, 
which is which is significant when we start to when we think about that issue of the democratic deficit, which this provision um, has been framed as as addressing and designed to address. Should we go into detail about the Stormer Rig operation? Or well, we... I'll, I'll come in there and just just say, I suppose, to, to clarify, one figure I've heard is, is there might be something like 1,200 EU regulations or directives which get amended or updated every year. Um, something mm -hmm. like 900 of those might be fairly routine and non-controversial, but around 300 might be... Uh, you know, a little bit more um, taxing in terms of their impact uh, on Northern Ireland. So, so typically mm -hmm. under the existing protocol or the agreed protocol, as you put it, uh, they would all be updated and amended automatically. But now there's the Stormont break gives um, Stormont the right to say, wait a minute, we're not sure if those regulations or, or directives or whatever should be automatically updated mm -hmm. um what are the circumstances in which stormont could pull that lever okay um so under the the stormont break procedure um if mlas so members of the legislative assembly in northern ireland the devolved um government there the devolved parliament if 30 of them um, from at least two different parties decide that um, one of those updates that you mentioned of the, the 900 or perhaps the 300 that um, can be more significant or burdensome, um, if they uh, believe that they would have a significant impact um, on the daily lives of people in Northern Ireland, and that's one of the kind of threshold tests for the ability to initiate this break procedure, um, that it would have to have a clear and um, clear impact on individuals in Northern Ireland and one that's liable to persist, then 30 MLAs in the, there are 90 by the way, um, in general, uh, can notify the UK government that they want the Stormont break um, procedure to the break to be pulled um, effectively. What that then means is that um, they have to publish uh, the reason why they're they're pulling this break. And if the UK accepts that and accepts it as being in line with the conditions set out in the text that has been agreed between the UK and the EU, primarily on the impact on daily life, um, and also that the MLAs have um, prior to the initiating of the break, that they have been engaging with the consult consultation mechanisms that have also been set up under the Windsor framework um, on the specific issue that they're pulling the break on. Then it goes to the UK-EU Joint Committee where a discussion is had. Um, the EU can request more information if they want about the, the reasoning. Um, but then there will be a, a kind of pause of whatever the change or amendment to the specific EU Act um, that was due to come in in Northern Ireland. If that um, if it's accepted, then, then that change doesn't apply. It's important to say that that doesn't mean the whole Act doesn't apply. It is the specific amendment or change that will be paused in effect. After that, it's a bit unclear. <laughs> right. So, so, so the mechanism that they, they have brought into the process here is is known as the petition of concern, and that is something which they're kind of borrowing from the Good Friday Agreement. 
Yes, so they are borrowing um, from the petition of concern, but important to say they're borrowing half of the petition of concern. Um, so the petition of concern allows um, 30 MLAs from two parties to um, lodge a petition to say that some um, uh, a piece of legislation in the Northern Ireland Assembly um, is of cross-community concern and therefore to pass, for that law to be passed in the Northern Ireland Assembly, you have to hold a cross-community vote to retain the to gain the support of both unionist and nationalist um, representatives. So in the storm and break procedure, the, the borrowing is the threshold of 30 MLAs from two parties, but there's no requirement at present in the in the legal texts and drafts um, for a cross-community vote to be held. However, the, the UK government have said that if um, the procedure, the storm and break procedure we've just talked through um, goes ahead and it comes to a joint committee kind of stage, so it's between the UK and the EU, in finalising whether or not a, a kind of um, pause on a change or amendment would apply that after all, even after a storm and break has been pulled, um, they've said that they would hold a cross-community consent vote in the Assembly. But how they'll do that and the thresholds around and the conditions will have to wait until they publish um, the draft legislative uh, provision that's going to that's gonna change UK law to make this happen. Right. And when we think back to the Good Friday Agreement, the petition of concern was really supposedly a safeguard for the minority community at the time, uh, if, if there were um, issues that they felt particular sensitive concern about? Yes, and, and there's something quite interesting in um, the contrast between the petition of concern under the 1998 agreement, which as you say, is to um, was developed to protect against uh, changes being made that would affect minority communities and position in respect to their rights and their identities. And it was quite um, cultural and about kind of flags and emblems typically. Um, and there have been changes since 1998 in Northern Ireland law and politics that try to narrow the scope of the use of the petition of concern to focus on those issues that the conflict here was about. In, by contrast, the storm and break and the, the thresholds and requirements um, that it sets up around the impact to daily life of all communities in Northern Ireland is quite different because you're looking for a kind of universal and more practical economic. Um, it's about in, goods, really. It's, a, it's about how goods are sold on the market. And these goods, of course, are sold because they comply with with EU standards and so on. Um, I mean, our, uh, an obvious question would be, like, typically, do we know why 30 MLAs might suddenly feel so exercised about a particular EU regulation that they would pull this lever? Are there any good examples out there as to where this might come into play? Hmm. Um determining what 30 MLAs might think, I'm, I might uh, not get into that detail, but in terms of examples of updates and changes to EU law that, that could come within the threshold, um, one interesting and kind of useful recent example is an update that just came through um, 
last week around the um, level of arsenic that can be included um, in uh, food that's sold for children and babies. So that it would come to a big surprise to a lot of people that they put arsenic in baby food, but there we go. That's another argument. Truly, yes, um, and uh, quite concerning. Um, but there is that they've changed the um, minimum requirement, lowered it, um, which is a good thing. Um, so EU standard on that is that um, I'm going to forget the figures, but I think they've reduced it by eighty percent. Um, so they can have much less um, or no arsenic in baby food. The UK, because they're out of the EU, have not adopted that change. Um, so under the new Windsor framework, what that means is that Northern Ireland producers will have to implement the EU change. So make sure that none of their products have the um, now kind of illegal level of arsenic in them. Um, but because goods from Great Britain can enter the Northern Ireland market if they're staying in the Northern Ireland market under this new arrangement. GB goods that have a higher level of arsenic um, because they're conforming to the previous standard, they can come in. So what you see there is Northern Ireland being this kind of truly a place in between the two markets. It's within both. Um, and so it's going to have to manage the, the dual um regulations that apply uh, in the storm and break procedure that's sort of an update if 30 MLAs decided that um, implementing that new requirement to lower the level of arsenic um, in baby food um, would have a really negative impact on the Northern Ireland economy um, and perhaps mean that supplies that they get from um, Great Britain wouldn't be available and that there would be a risk of shortages, then they might decide to initiate that break and go into the whole consultative process. But, but to be clear, um, under this new system, it would be fine for baby food with higher levels of arsenic from GB to come into Northern Ireland as long as those goods are staying there. It's really where Northern Ireland food manufacturers are making baby food and they would want to sell it to the south or to anywhere else in the single market exactly and unfortunately yes yeah so i mean this what this really does is, is gets into the whole question of divergence mm. um, and there's been a suggestion that ultimately when it comes to it i mean as you said there's a whole architecture around this storm and break which militates against vexatious use of it so you have to show that it's you know urgent that it has um widespread and disruptive impacts on ordinary life and that there's you, you've exhausted all other alternative op options um the, the the way it's set up seems to me that it's designed in a way that it's very rarely used would that be fair I think that is fair. I think when you look at it and even in the way that it's discussed, um, particularly by the EU side, but also in the UK documents, this is meant to be a, a last resort procedure. And the, the broader architecture is meant to facilitate better Northern Ireland involvement and also consideration in changes being made in EU law such that that mitigates 
a risk that by the time you get to the very end process of of new law and updated law, um, it doesn't have it won't have a, a broad negative impact for Northern Ireland. Um, I also didn't mention, and just because it is relevant on that one, that uh, the break would have to be pulled two months after um, the law is first published in the EU journal. So there is a timeline on that, which is also not a lot of time, is it, to, to for, for MLAs to get their head around what, what it means? Really not a lot of time. And, and that's a whole other set of issues around the Windsor framework generally, the changes made. There are... Um, there are big tasks ahead for MLAs in, in Northern Ireland if they're going to manage this new system um, because of divergence implications and also because, um, as you mentioned, EU law changes a lot. Um, so it's it's a question of capacity. Does the system in Northern Ireland, in terms of MLAs, in terms of civil society, businesses, um, the Northern Ireland civil service, does it have the capacity to be on top of all these new regulations and to know precisely what the impact will be in Northern Ireland if mm -hmm. there is a discrepancy between that legislation and what's the what the UK stroke GB legislation is. Mm. Yes. Um, and does it have capacity? It's never had to do this before. So um capacity will have to be built in order to enable that um to happen. And there are open unanswered questions about how those structures are going to be set up for scrutiny and an analysis of the different changes. Also, and this is bringing in a whole other level of complexity, but worth flagging that the retained EU law bill in the UK context is, is hitting the, the final stages of its parliamentary process. And if and when that comes in, um, because a lot of the changes that have been made so far in EU law haven't had a very significant divergence effect, because essentially you have the UK um, kind of mirror dancing changes in EU law because of uh, continuation of what was EU law as retained EU law. So if that gets disapplied wholesale, that's... Um, really risks uh, overnight creating um, quite a significant new areas of divergence for Northern Ireland being that that touching point between the two markets. Um, yeah, so that, that gets us really into this whole question about the, the British government and Rishi Sunak's twin constituencies. I mean, on the one hand, he has to keep Eurosceptics sweet in his party with the retained EU law bill, but on the other hand, he's just embarking on this brand new era of warmer cooperation with the EU. And it may be tempting for the UK quietly going forward to just simply stay aligned with the EU in various areas so that they don't end up with a storm and break crisis or not crisis, but you know, friction uh, every couple of months. Mm. Yes, agreed. And um, there are signs that uh, businesses in the UK and more generally um, kind of civic society, there will be, there is more momentum for keeping aligned to a degree and particularly in the areas that fall within the scope of the protocol in general and the storm and break in particular because it's movement of goods rather than um kind of services or financial services where you might think that this um conservative government would see would want to see more divergence um 
so so there it's a pending risk and the extent to which it it's realized really does depend a lot on the actions taken um in number 10 and in parliament so one to keep watching all right on that note lisa claire mm -hmm. thanks so much for your help pleasure thanks for being thanks for the invitation Okay, so that was uh, Lisa Clare Whitten of Queen's University Belfast Brexit Unit uh, speaking to you, Tony. How is that likely to find its outworking after the fact when this comes into operation? Is this the kind of business that the Joint Committee uh, will have to concern itself with? Or from what we've heard there, will we hear some of the first tests of the storm and break being applied? Yeah, I mean, I think essentially it's, it's clear that once everybody sees what is involved, you know, there, there will have to be a lot of babysitting and, and minding of, of how Northern Ireland goes forward applying EU single market rules for goods, but yet being in, in the UK and what it means for divergence, you know, will, will the divergence start to um, cause problems uh, for unionists or will the UK decide that for, for the sake of a quiet life, they should quietly um, align, stay aligned with EU standards uh, or, or seek equivalent. So it's just going to be a, a, an ongoing uh, process. But there's, there's one particular quirk which has sort of thrown, thrown itself up in the last uh, few days, and, and that was after the UK published its statutory instrument, the legal instrument which will make the Stormont break work. Um, and what uh, some eagle-eyed experts on Twitter discovered was that um, if... if if the Stormont break is pulled by 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 MLAs uh, under the petition of concern, the UK has a choice to look at the the petition and say, "Do you know what? We don't think this matches the 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 test. This doesn't meet the bar for blocking this particular regulation." But then the UK can decide to put the issue back to the assembly for a vote on a cross-community basis. Now, what that means de facto is that yeah, the DUP or, or unionism could have a veto then on that uh, regulation applying in Northern Ireland. So in other words, the break is pulled. UK says, we don't think the bar is met, but you guys can have a cross-community vote, which is a de facto DUP veto anyway. So some people have said, mm, this looks like a double break or a, or a kind of a veto by stealth. Now, I was checking this out with the European Commission. They were saying they're not that concerned about it because throughout the statutory instrument, the UK is saying, look, um, everything that we do is in the spirit of and in line with uh, all the agreements we've reached with the European Union on this. And in any case, the UK can decide not to give Stormont that cross-community vote if there are exceptional circumstances or if it doesn't lead the issue doesn't lead to any divergence between Northern Ireland and the and and the rest of the UK so it's complicated there are lots of weird wrinkles in there still and I think there's still some confusion between Dublin and Brussels and London about how these issues will be worked on and, and work out um, but uh, it just shows you that it's very complicated and it's going to take an awful lot of minding uh, in, in the years to come. To look ahead, John, the, uh, after getting this wrapped up, uh, given the margin of Rishi Sunak's victory, it shows perhaps just how much of a domestic concern it was for Tory backbenchers and indeed everybody else, as in not much of a concern. Britain as a whole in terms of 
um, England, Scotland, Wales wants to move on from this, the UK uh, as a whole maybe less so when it comes to Northern Ireland. But how much of a boon is this to Rishi Sunak? Does the wider public care or is this going to enhance his reputation as a statesman, as a leader? Well, on the Northern, on the Windsor Agreement itself, uh, there were some polls published uh, after it was uh, reported on, and it was it was dutifully uh, top of the uh, news broadcast uh, programs. It was on the front pages of the newspapers, but the vast majority of British people didn't pay much attention to it. So it's not a huge issue, but. Um, having said that, Richie Sunak is doing is doing very well now at the moment. Uh, ever since, uh, I suppose, around his hundred day mark, er everything has been getting better, better for him. British people might not that might not be that much interested in the detail of the of the Windsor Agreement, but there is a perception that he's got something sorted out that was causing a trouble, and that we can and that Britain can move on now. There is that perception. And then there was the agreement with France, which is very important. I don't think a lot of Irish people realise about this complicated British-French relationship. Uh, there's, there's a cultural mutual antipathy there. Um, it, the French would be like the English to the Irish, uh, it, traditionally. Um, but they have to work with them because they're two huge economies, they're two big defence powers. It's a very important relationship and it, it had, there had been no bilateral meetings in, in over a decade, but uh, Rishi Sunak has got that back on board as well. He's also brought back the, um, the illegal immigration. He's promised to tackle that. He's got other plans for crime as well. So there is, his, his polls are improving. They're doing better than, the, than his party is. So there's a feeling that he's on the up at the moment and that the Northern Ireland uh, protocol, the agreement over that has helped. All right. Okay. An unexpected Brexit bounce, which Tony, I suppose, is a good way after all of the chaos and hassle and everything else we've covered on this podcast uh, is where we're going to leave it temporarily anyway for now. Yeah, so um, as, as listeners uh, will will be aware, we've um, we've been in transition. Um, Colm, you've you've moved to a, a different department within RTE, so uh, that has complicated things a bit. And also, we we are keeping an eye on uh, revamping the podcast anyway to take account of broader European uh, and Irish issues. So um, we will be. I hope bringing sporadic uh, Brexit Republic podcasts or certainly podcasts with a strong Brexit stroke Northern Ireland protocol stroke Windsor framework theme because of course Brexit never really gets done uh, and we're sure to be uh, hitting speed bumps along the way uh, but we will be very grateful for our loyal legion of listeners uh, to uh, to bear with us and, and we will have uh, further excellent uh, audio products uh, coming down the tracks uh, in due course. Well, it's certainly been a great pleasure doing it for as more years than I care to remember, as I think um, an ad on RT used to say. Well, that's it. Uh, for me, anyway, for, for quite some time, my thanks to, to Tony for all his patience and endurance and expertise over the last while, and to John uh, in his new role-ish, new-ish role, I suppose, at this stage, uh, for all his time as well. On sound, we had Mark McGrath today. The pro podcast was produced by Edmund Heafy. From me, Colm O'Mungo, and that's it.